Hello and welcome to The One with Shabad, a podcast about Sikh history, philosophy and culture. Hosted by Shabad Singh and produced by me, Rishwajit Singh. In this episode, Shabad interviews Jasleen Kaur about her campaign running for City Council District 23 of New York City. Jasleen Kaur is an organizer, survivor advocate and lifelong resident of Glen Oaks, running for City Council District 23. She wants to transform the public transit system, bail out gig economy workers and foster a violence-free New York City for students, seniors and families across Eastern Queens. They talk about her experience in the Sikh community and how her values translate to politics, her reaction to the 2020 presidential election and the broader politics in the United States, her progressive agenda for District 23 and more. Before we begin, if you appreciate the work Shabad and I do to bring you this show and highlight the great work people in the community are doing, consider supporting the show on Patreon. It is only the support of our generous patrons that we can continue making the show. Go to patreon.com slash the one podcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash t-h-e-o-n-e podcast. And help us out with as little as two dollars. Here's the show. Jocelyn Kaur, welcome to The One. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Shad. It's great to be here. Yeah, we're so uh, happy to have you on. And, um, you know, before we get into the questions, actually, I thought I'd, I'd hit you with a little curveball, which was, uh, <laughs> you know, day before yesterday, we have a new uh, president, uh, Joe Biden, that has been effectively confirmed uh, right. after a long wait. Right. And be curious to hear your reaction to that. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people will remember exactly where they were when they had found out, given True. just the circumstances of, you know, so many late nights spent staring wide awake at Steve Kornacki, waiting for him to do the math on what's it, oh, what exactly. Machine. <laughs> exactly. Never seen anything more impressive on cable TV news. But I think it was it was such an you know interesting day for me. I was out. We were doing some campaign work in a local park out here in East Queens, and you really never would have known that there had been such a seismic shift <laughs> in national power. Right. People were just walking in the park, walking their dogs, hanging out in the grass, like nothing had even happened. And so my phone was going off. I had no idea why, but I hadn't had access to my phone for a couple hours at a time. And now, then I had started seeing all these videos of people celebrating, banging their pots and pans. I'm like, we don't we're not having that kind of energy out where I am. <laughs> so it, it, it caught me off guard. I really had no idea what had happened until uh, maybe two hours after the fact. So I was a little bit late to the party, uh, literally and figuratively. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think that it's it's been really interesting to see people saying that they're not celebrating Joe Biden's win. They're celebrating Trump's ousting from power. And I think, mm-hmm. especially in New York, I think what was really interesting was that um, – this was an important time to allow people a moment to celebrate. It was a moment of respite and for people to just feel like there was at least a little bit of a weight left off their shoulders. Um, and, you know, for me, it wasn't uh, I didn't feel compelled to kind of be that guy of, well, mm. you know, we still have more work to do. And, yes, we do have to get organized the next morning. But, you know, even even the WhatsApp group chats, you know, with all of you know my family, we were all just like, oh, my God, can you believe Joe Biden actually won? This is insane. And so I think it means a lot to, you know, even our immigrant communities out here that even if it's a symbolic shift in power, it's something that really uh, transformed the nature of what the future of U.S. politics can look like. And I think um, 
I'm glad to see that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris will be the ones that we choose to fight for the next right. four years, right? It's a better adversary for sure. Um, but, you know, it's, uh, you know, I'm glad that the count is over. I know New York won't be beginning our absentee ballot count until maybe tomorrow, uh-huh. <laughs> it's looking like. But, yeah, I, I am a little bit neutral, but I feel like um, there's so much about uh, even Biden's legacy in the Obama era that we really have to reckon with come mm. 2021. And I don't think that, um, I, I, I would hope that the new administration doesn't sit on their laurels too long uh, and really gets down to the nitty gritty and fulfill the promises, however lukewarm they were sure. uh, on Inauguration Day. Certainly. Yeah. And and let's not uh, get totally dis- uh, sidetracked on that because we want to talk about <laughs> <laughs> uh, you and your uh, campaign. Yeah. Um, so, so uh, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself and your history and what uh, led you to this moment of running for uh, Queen City Council? Yeah. I mean, I, I hope people are really ready. I mean, I know, but like, well, what do you mean? There's another election <laughs> in 2021. <laughs> but you know, it's it's these down ballot races that mean so much to a lot of local communities and where a lot of um, the really uh, heavy, heavy duty change is going to happen. Um, so I am running for city council out here in District 23 in East Queens. Uh, I was born and raised in a very little known town called Glen Oaks. Um, that I'm hoping to put on the map, right? I, I'm hoping that this will be a new hub for organizing, that this will be something, a place that really people want to look at. And so, you know, I, I was raised here my entire life. My parents moved out um, to the United States and really settled in here in the earlier 90s. And, um, you know, my dad started out, he was, I always tell the story, but he started out working in like shipping and like in docks where he was loading up cargo for a traveling like global circus which wow. <laughs> is always is always just so bizarre and also that had to have been a really interesting dock job. <laughs> I, mean, I feel like you're loading and unloading interesting things for the circus <laughs> every single day. Like he has the most incredible stories about that one. It's like, oh, I've been to Russia, I had been to South Korea, I'd been to Italy. I'm like, well, yeah. Then he landed in in California of all places, right? He'd started out. Um, he was on an immigration visa, and he was working and kind of like agriculture and farming for some time before he came out to New York. And for him, uh, you know, he was working a lot of odd jobs, like in auto repair, at gas stations, before he kind of bought into the promise, so to speak, of the taxi medallion. Um, And we have a really huge population of taxi drivers within our district and within New York City at large. I mean, these are the people who really keep our city moving. Um, And then my mom came over, over here in like the early 90s with my brother they settled out in Jackson Heights, and then they went to Whitestone, and then came out to Glen Oaks, where our family really settled down, got started up, and you know got the promise of putting out a mortgage on a home, uh, putting us through some of these really great public schools out in Queens. And you know, I always really think that my story is really tied to theirs in so many ways because, um, you know, not to harp on the child of immigrants narrative, right? But uh, how they brought me here has a lot to do with. Um, you know, where I got started, where I got, uh, where I was able to, you know, launch off from. And, um, you know, growing up, I, you know, I felt really, I was really lucky uh, to be nurtured by a really large South Asian community here. Um, Many people don't know that this part of Queens is also, um, sorry about that, uh, is is also like 
one of the second largest like Sikh Punjabi communities in New York City, just outside of Richmond Hill. Like it's Punjabi, like little Punjab number two. Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> here. Yeah. So I always grew up like the Gurdwaras are just like five minutes away. There's always, you know, good food out in the neighborhood and people, people who look like me and people in school who mm. look like me too. And so I felt really lucky being kind of nurtured by a community that um, had a very similar immigrant stories to my parents. Um, and that I think really does a lot for how children grow up, perceive themselves and understand mm -hmm. identity too. Um, but, you know, for me, I think what that really, how, the way that that really spoke to me was that, you know, there's that promise of you settle out somewhere in suburbia, you put your kids through a great school, it's a really quiet neighborhood and you're able to prosper. Um, but a lot of that wasn't really actualized for families mm -hmm. like mine. Mm -hmm. Right. And, um, it, it's it's interesting the way people buy into the promise of say the American dream that like you can work your way up to you know the kind of old school merit meritocratic um, adages right that you work hard and you can you can put your you can make your family super successful, but so much of that was um, you know compromised by say the two thousand eight housing market crash, and then in twenty fourteen with the taxi medallion market crash, and that was just so pivotal to us because overnight almost, like hundreds of thousands of families were plummeted into almost a million dollars worth of debt. Wow. And a lot of that had to do with private market dealings between these um, you know, private medallion and loan, loan sharks, right? People who were dealing with a lot of the debt that people had taken on because the taxi medallion itself was valued at millions of dollars, right? Mm. It was, you know, this was an investment that hedged on a really high return on profit. And so, so many immigrant families bought into this saying like, yes, of course we want to purchase a medallion and then we can, you know, put food on the table, pay our bills and buy a home like my parents did. But um, when that market tanked as, you know, <laughs> as it does when you rely on markets to regulate themselves, when you rely on private businesses to be doing that, you know, backroom negotiating, it, it flipped everything on its head. And that, I think, was such an important moment for me because not only were we plummeted into so much debt, I was just at the point where I was about to start college. And within a year, because of those financial you know, woes and troubles, I had to drop out because we just couldn't afford it anymore. Mm. And I knew so many other families who were in the same boat. Either they had to foreclose on their homes, they had to put a loan against their house, or they had to pull their kids out of school and put them to work, right? And it's that kind of working class experience that I think speaks to so many people in New York City. This consistent annual promise of what kind of prosperity you're supposed to achieve, um, but never fulfilling that promise to begin with. And when I think about the kinds of leadership that we've had historically in New York City, whether that's at the mayoral level or at the hyperlocal level in assembly, city council, there really hasn't been a working class champion um, in, in, in our city. And for me, that was really a calling card and why I run, wanted to run for city council. You know, I, I dropped out of school. I went to community college. You know, I've been on food stamps for two years. I, I know mm. what it's like to have to catch a bus and a train an hour and a yeah. half just to get to school. And, you know, I know I'm not the only one. And so for me, running for city council says symbolizes so much about not only a shift in power, 
but also representation and right how we think about where we're going to build up the working class. Where are we going to build out these kinds of multiracial solidarities to really pull people out of something that's really only been exasperated in this pandemic? So I'm really excited to push this you know, platform ahead in city council. We've got yeah. a lot of time until that primary, but it's an exciting moment where um, a lot of change is going to be on that ballot. And you know, I don't plan on shying away from any of that. Yeah, excellent. And I think that that's the that's the key, and that's what's missing from our national politics is mm-hmm. this shying away, or rather, not shying away from really defending the working class. And right. uh, what what you know bore out in this last election mm-hmm. is cl- clearly still the primary base of the Democratic Party is working people. Exactly. Uh, and yet they they continue to be left behind, uh, especially at the national level. So, what what um, so you talked about your your working class uh, experience of watching this promise uh, never fulfilled. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if there's any experiences, readings, uh, aspects of your education, aspects of your life as a Sikh, or any of uh, your your life experiences that you'd mm-hmm. like to maybe hone in on that inform your your politics. Yeah, absolutely. I think. Yeah, I, I credit a lot of how, you know, my own personal politic has developed to going to public university, right? I People really write off community colleges. And, um, you know, I went to CUNY, which is, you know, such a hallmark of city education out here in New York. Um, but I, I really credit a lot of that to how I experienced um, not only just like the theory, reading the theory of um, socialist feminists and reading the works of abolitionists who have been writing very recently, right? But also just the nature of the classrooms to begin with were also indicative of what the working class experience was like. I shared classrooms with people who are 65 years plus who are just wanting to get a refresher on how things are going right now and really get back into school. I was in classes with people who, uh, you know, were uh, enrolled for like daytime, you know, for part-time roles in, in the daytime. And then they'd scurry off to work for an evening shift, or maybe they were nurses and working at a hospital at the same time. And this is the reality, right? This is what people have to do in order to secure an education. And, you know, for me, I think I, I so I studied women and gender studies uh, and human rights uh, in my under, in my time during undergrad. And I think one of the stories that I think really stuck out to me was that of um, Asada Shakur. And mm. her political exile into Cuba, and what that says so much to me, I think about um, the you know lingering battles that we still have just from the civil rights era of people who will be extradited from this country for believing in something that has always been right and fighting for something because you know they'll never be there's never going to be an appropriate time for your politics to be okay with the status quo, right? There's never mm-hmm. going to be that appropriate time. But if you keep waiting, then there's going to be lives on the line for that. And I think we we had read um, Asada's uh, autobiography um, for one of my classes. And something that really stuck out to me was that she was not only shackled, right, while uh, incarcerated, right, taken away by the police, shackled up, but also that she was on the FBI's most wanted list for organizing mm. with the Black Liberation Army. That is it encapsulates so much, I think, about the surveillance state, how we're constantly punishing and incarcerating people who are fighting for the liberation of 
uh, the most marginalized people, right? And I think it, it crystallized a lot for me in thinking about, um, you know, just how committed to, to fighting are you, right? What exactly does organizing in the United States against white supremacy, against a carceral state, what does that actually mean and what does that look like? But also what's the sacrifice there, yeah. right? She had to change her name, go under a different alias, really just, and, and she's still in Cuba now, right? right. And, and, and has, has no plans on returning, but that even says a lot about U.S.-Cuban relations to this day, and even broad, broader about U.S. and Latin American relations. Yeah. But um, for me, it was so transformative to learn about her story um, and know that she's still here. Her and Angela Davis are still here and still mm -hmm. surviving. And, you know, it, it, it says a lot, I think, first about how important their fight was, but also that almost 60 years later, it's still not over. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so their positions as, um, you know, even communist feminists, I think, says a lot about um, how slowly this movement has progressed over that time, but is still necessary to this day. Um, and so, you know, even in, in, in conversation with that, I think, you know, as we, as conversations around abolition really come forward, right, and how we imagine an anti-carceral world, I think in the past year, that's really been linked to Sikhism for me, right, mm -hmm. as someone who has felt a little bit more removed from my faith, right, as someone who mm -hmm. grew up in the United States, became really Americanized, um, even learning about, you know, Guru Hargobind Singh Ji, right, and his path towards freedom and freeing 52 other political prisoners really ignited something else in me too, that, um, you know, that it, it helped me see that Sikhi isn't just another silo in my life. Mm -hmm. And it's intrinsic to how I envision justice and liberation for our community and for everyone else. And I know we're, you know, really on the heels of Bandicho Divas this, sun this Saturday too. And I think it's been really comforting experience to really lean into my faith and my politic at the same time and know that those mm -hmm. are hand in hand and will always work together. And mm. it, you know, you can be socialist and be someone who really champions Sikhism. And those are so inseparable to me. Mm. And so let's, let's talk a little bit about um, your, the race and what uh, issues are at stake. I know you talked about, um, the taxi medallion collapse mm. in 2014. And I know that that's just from my reading mm -hmm. of, of Queens uh, news. Uh, since you ran, I'm, I'm, I now know more about Queens <laughs> issues uh, than I ever knew before, but that, that seems yeah. to be a major issue uh, on mm -hmm. the ballot. But I wonder uh, if you could talk about uh, the context of that issue and, and whatever, what other things you're um, championing and what, what people are really dealing with in Queens that, yeah. Uh, requires the kind of response that you're looking to give. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the what, what's important to me is that a candidate is always a conduit for a movement, right? Is is someone who's going to champion something that people have already been organizing on the ground for. And I think it's been really powerful to see the Taxi Workers Alliance working towards um, justice for gig economy workers across the city. I mean, I my uncle has been pretty active, and I think it's it, it's really inspiring to see how far that's move, that movement has gone. Um, they do a number of protests. They occupy the you know bridges across New York City. And I had even seen a friend of mine share a photo um, from some of the people who were protesting. And I was like, on Facebook, and I was like, dude, that's my uncle. Mm. <laughs> and it's, it's crazy to think about just how far and wide these movements have spread. 
But I think even just that taxi medallion issue says so much about labor relations and our need for not just more jobs, right, but more quality jobs that are that have strong unions. And, mm. you know, I, I always grew up knowing that union labor is going to be how we get the kind of quality of life that we've always deserved. Mm-hmm. So my mom, she works, um, she works at a grocery store and she's, she's working under a union. And, you know, while of course not all unions are created equally, just that alone has provided so many important protections that she would be just thrown under the bus if she hadn't had mm-hmm. that. And, you know, a lot of union members, even in our district, um, really rely on you know healthcare provisions from their unions, um, worker uh, anti-worker harassment work, and that kind of like deep organizing that happens um, for people who are involved in the labor movement. And you know we have so many hospitals in our district and across Queens too. Um, people who are part of nurses unions, people who are part of um, the teachers union, and some of the caucuses within that too. And I think it says a lot about how worker power can coalesce towards, um, you know, working against, you know, the 1%, so to speak, Mm. right? And um, I'm really excited to champion something that's going to really fight for strong labor relations within our city. Um, And so there's, um, there's even something on the table that really has not been um, passed at the city council level. It's called the Small Business Job Survival Act, um, that is really going to fight towards um, making sure that small businesses have the opportunity to not fall at the behest of predatory landlords and Mm. can live um, with really fair commercial rent regulation. And that even says a lot about how small businesses are able to survive in New York City. So many have been impacted by COVID um, and just don't have a pathway out in case a major crisis comes about. I think Mm. that even says a lot about um, just how unstable we know capitalism to be. Mm. Uh, we can't keep relying on the market to regulate itself. It's never going to work for the most amount of people. It's not a utilitarian political economy. Mm. And I think that that's really steeped within a lot of our policies in terms of um, giving back to the working class. You know, things like we need to tax the rich. We need to reassess what our budget priorities are going to look like in the next budget cycle. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, really put the people first. And so um, that, I think, in tandem with housing and development Mm -hmm. really is where the fight is going to be in Queens and across New York City. Um, So (laughs) I'm sure it's really funny, I think, to think that so many of our mayors are also nationally acclaimed just because of how much they've, they've uprooted New York City to begin with. And there are so many people in my district and in Queens at large who are being priced out of their homes because you know they either aren't in rent stabilized apartments, they can't keep paying off the mortgage on their homes, or they lack the kind of senior living arrangements um, that many senior citizens, you know, don't have somewhere that they can um, live with dignity. And I think that's a really important part of what our platform is going to be: that every single person deserves dignity, respect, and safety in the entire course of their life. So that fight is going to look like working against luxury developers and private mm-hmm. equity who keep buying up property instead of investing in social housing or creating mm-hmm. privately owned public spaces, which itself is such an anomaly yeah. that that's even a thing, right? Um, yeah. But you know, these, these are some of the biggest battles that are really going to change the shape of New York City politics in 2021. 
And I wonder, if, going back to the medallion issue, so what I'm understanding is, is that the taxi workers are actually, so so uh, if I if I understand correctly, with the advent of the kind of Uber, Lyft, mm-hmm. uh, the apps, and and the gig workers that drive the cars for for these companies. Mm-hmm. Um, so these workers are not treated as full employees. They're treated as contractors, right. which means that they're exempt from ba- certain basic labor uh, protections. Right. And that makes them much cheaper labor, correct? Exactly. Exactly. And so, and so that is what kind of creates this this bottoming out of the whole. A medallion market, mm-hmm. which then completely devalues these these me- these taxi medallions that people right. have invested yeah. tons of their time and money into. So, right. so that so so what I'm understanding is is that the taxi workers, because I know that like for example, I remember I was in France uh, mm-hmm. when when taxi or when when Lyft and Uber really started to pick up one one year, and there was this. Mm-hmm. Like I remember being picked up by a lift at the airport mm. and he had to drive past a taxi line and he actually took his little lift sign mm. down when he was driving past them because oh. he was like afraid of the retaliation from the taxi workers. Right. But wow. and and so I could understand that that animosity, but mm-hmm. it's kind of misplaced animosity. And it sounds like because because the real problem is not you know, this gig worker versus the taxi worker. Mm. The real problem is, is the, the structural aspect of, of, of how people are being classified as workers and then how it's screwing the taxi drivers. So that's amazing that the taxi workers are recognizing that their plight is actually linked to these other workers, uh, plight. And so they're organizing to really better all of their lots. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's there's that shared common enemy, right? Of just mm-hmm. these often faceless corporations of people who are jeopardizing the lives of so many people and workers who have unfortunately had to resort to even suicide because they can't mm. shoulder that burden for so long. And I think it's been really magical, really, to see the kinds of solidarity with Uber and Lyft and green taxi drivers and yellow cab drivers who are really just working together in unison towards, you know, tackling all of this at the same time. So what kind of a policy at, do, could you at, at the city council level work mm-hmm. towards to to ameliorate that? Yeah. So there's really interesting divisions and in how different levels of power can really uh, combat this kind of medallion issue. And so, you know, it, it's been really upsetting to see that even Prop 22 um, what, what that fallout has been like in California, where essentially the major corporations won, right? Because this ballot measure, um, you know, there are millions of dollars poured into this awful ballot measure that was messaged as being pro-worker, but as organizers and union workers knew, um, it, it really worked against their favor. And so there's some really great work that's being done at the state level um, towards liberation and a, re, a reclassification of that, um, uh, of their employee status, right? That we want them to be full employees who can, um, uh, who can enjoy those kinds of, you know, worker benefits. Uh, and at the city level, it's a little bit more limited. So mm-hmm. this is, this is constantly what the conversation has to be, right? How we can work with like the state budget and the city budget and kind of 
build these kinds of negotiations at different levels of government here. Mm-hmm. And so at the city council level, I think something that um, is going to be really important is thinking about how are we going to move around our budget? Maybe we draw from the capital budget in terms of really pulling out um, a bailout fund um, mm. for taxi drivers who really deserve a payback on this. Now, mm. there's something that's it, it's a little bit more difficult than it sounds, right? Because unfortunately, a lot of these um, a lot of the people who are complicit in uh, you know this this massive debt, um, you can't even put out a FOIA request to figure out just how much these families owe back to these companies because they're all private. So mm. it's hard to even get the data on how many people have been affected by this, how much money they've paid off in full, um, how much money they still owe. So there's a little bit more in the weeds to figure out on that front. Mm. Um, but I think we can even think about what a pension fund for workers um, who are under the New York City Taxi and Limousine Commission, which is a city agency. So there's work to be done on that front. Um, and the city council in past years has really um, you know, really taken a very slow approach to this, unfortunately. And, um, and then a lot of this fallout happened in 2014, and it was only in 2019 that they put together like a, a task force. Of, wow. Uh, and, and I'm sure you know what, what a task force usually yeah. signals, right? Yeah. A task force to uh, re- do research and then create another task force and then... <laughs> Yeah, exactly. They'll put out a report. Uh, they'll host host a few hearings. They'll invite some you know workers to speak on a on a forum somewhere at a hearing, and you really don't move anywhere else. And yeah. the last movement we've seen on that task force was, I think, in in February of this year. But you know, it's it's been really sad to see um, how taxi workers really just fall uh, at the wayside a lot of a lot yeah. of this work. But I think yeah. there's incredible potential in the city council to really make this a hallmark of what our council can do in the next year. And so, and that's such an important thing, I think, is like um, being elected is is not only about what you can actually get done in terms of policy, because mm-hmm. there's so many structural uh, elements that are aligned against you actually Absolutely. accomplishing that, but being a champion of an issue like that and having using the pulpit that you get Mm -hmm. with elected office is like a powerful thing that can move public opinion and that can actually help build a movement. I think it's so, you know, it's like, um, I think a lot of times, um, it's important for people to understand that, that like winning elections is only like one part of oh, things. Yeah. It's like about then the the organizing that you can do with mm-hmm. a champion in power right. uh, is can be much more effective, I think, than organizing against the mm-hmm. the people in power exclusively. It's almost like what you were saying with with Biden and uh, versus Trump. It's a much uh, not that they're that workers are going to have to negotiate with you because you're <laughs> going to be their champion, but it's like it's going from contending with the, the powers that be mm. to actually having the powers that be uh, supporting your movement. So that's that's right. a profound um, a profound win uh, for for workers. And and then I wonder if you can you can talk a little bit as well about like what kinds of uh, policy um, like like do we know how many people are being displaced by gentrification and being mm. priced out of their homes and are there policies that you can fight for at the city council level that can also uh, ameliorate that situation? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the um, really important 
roles of a city council member is negotiating on rezonings and land use. Um, so our land use um, procedure is called ULERP. It's the Uniform Land Use Review Procedure, and it's quite infamous in New York City, unfortunately, mm. uh, because it's known to be incredibly bureaucratic. And rezonings and land use are how we think about um, how land is going to be either upzoned to be used for a new project or allocated for things like social housing or affordable housing units. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's known to be one of the longest processes that you can possibly imagine. There's mm. like six steps. You have to um, submit a, a proposal. The developers will submit a proposal. It goes to the community boards and it goes to the council member. It's a whole array of you know just procedural bureaucracy, unfortunately, um, in how we think about uh, how we use land strategically in New York City. And so, you know, what's what's really at the crux of figuring out how we combat private development in New York City, I think, has a lot to do with how we restructure our community boards. And that is a conversation on what we do at the most hyper level, hyper local level of civic mm -hmm. engagement. Because and anyone who's attended a community board um, out here where I am or any other you know, pockets of Queens, it's often people who are not democratically elected, who have led the boards for longer than I've probably been alive, right? I'm 24 <laughs> years old. They've probably, <laughs> they've probably been there for a long, long time. And um, you know, th these are people who have been making the decisions on um, whether there's going to be an, an environmental impact survey, um, mm. whether we whether we know how much uh, how many units will be allocated for affordable housing, and even that is arbitrary, right? Mm. You build up this entire this whole building that will also take you know it could take a decade to actually bring this up, right? And you know maybe there's a housing lottery, but they'll say yes, we'll allocate a certain percentage of affordable units within this building, and it's maybe like a floor of the, of right, the unit. Right, and right. and what does that accomplish for anybody, right? right. So then you have so many people com competing for limited resources that don't have to be limited in the first place. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of my major frustrations with how we think about housing and development in New York City. And so at the council level, there are ways to really democratize this ULERP process again, right? Thinking mm -hmm. about how we, how we can appoint people who actually represent the community in our community boards. Mm. Um, how are we actually training people to understand what this land use process actually looks like and putting people into that process of negotiations and taking private development out of the picture there? Because there are so many lobbying dollars to be made. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the other priorities, I think, on our campaign, too, that we're not taking money from real estate developers. We're not taking money from private corporations. And I think that has been such an important signifier for a lot of people who are running you know, these new, really progressive yeah. left campaigns, right? And they have been able to buy out so much of our city. So much of the even democratic establishment has been bought out by the real estate apparatus. Mm -hmm. And I think that even says a lot about, you know, people think of New York as this kind of liberal uh, safe haven, right. but it's right. absolutely not. Absolutely not. Well, that yeah, and that's that's such a uh, another great point to think about is the kind of uh, appointments that you will be charged with. Right. Um, that is not necessarily about passing legislation or policy, mm -hmm. but is about making sure that uh, people who actually represent the the people in your um, district 
right. uh, are sitting in, in very, these very important bo- boards that, like you said, it's like, you know, you, you, you started explaining that process to me and I actually did fall asleep for a second. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's like, I, I, I care you. about, <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Um, uh, I, I, uh, but, but it is, it's like such a, a bureaucratic, um, uh, a, a process that working people have such little time to follow right. and to participate in. And so, it's it, so what you're describing sounds to me like a it's like yes the importance of who you're appointing uh, actually representing your constituency mm-hmm. and then and then on top of that acting as sort of like organizer slash counselor right. like your your job is to is not only to to pass legislation make these appointments but then to use your position like we were talking about mm-hmm. before to get people involved and and that's such a a powerful thing that. Mm-hmm. Um, without that kind of leadership, mm-hmm. uh, people are just, I guess, floundering. And, um, yeah. and, and I wonder if that, um, that sort of, uh, sclerotic and archaic, uh, group of people mm-hmm. that you're describing as having sat on these boards and, and governed things for so long, is that what we refer to as the queen's machine? hundred <laughs> percent. Gotcha. The, these, this is the old guard, right? This is right. the, these are the party bosses, so to speak, right, of the queen's machine who make decisions about who's supposed to be in office years before it's even supposed to happen. Mm. And I think that alone says a lot about the kind of backroom dealings. And we often think about this as some like funny little West Wing thing, right? <laughs> of just right, these, right. These, these private deals, but these these you know democratic clubs and so to speak, right, are often not amenable to any kind of rupturing. Uh, of, mm-hmm. the, of the local politics. And so I think, you know, people often look to, well, this is something that the, the mayor has to handle. This is something that we can battle in Congress, but it's really this like hyper local um, organizing that really needs to be done to kind of oust a lot of the old legacy of leadership that we've had for a number of years. I mean, mm-hmm. I spoke to somebody, you know, and you know, people often think that it's it's not it's not going to happen. It's too hard. You can't challenge people who've been in power and have the kind of money to back whoever candidate they could possibly imagine, right? And I think that you know, of course, AOC has really challenged what what our political imagination can look like. Just mm-hmm. in even in her reelection cycle, even just yesterday, everyone's got something to say about <laughs> what AOC's priorities are, right? Um, but I think that uh, it, for for us, it's really important to say that. We're not going to be relying on this archaic system that is really resistant to our policies to begin with. Mm. And um, it's it, it's a longstanding source of power that has really not fought for the working class, has made you know nice platitudes and, and said some nice things, I'm sure, um, but is really not invested in, in building long-term coalitions, right? right? Long-term organizing apparatuses that will go beyond that ballot. And that's, I think, a, a really major priority for us in terms of building these multi-ethnic, multicultural coalitions, um, building across a number of different socioeconomic statuses in our district, and saying that, yes, people power will be what ousts the old guard mm. of the queen's machine in, in, in our time. And it can be possible. It will happen. And I think that we always have to believe in the will of the people, because that's the, really o- the only way we'll get to you know, real, sh- real material shifts in the conditions of our lives. So I think that leads well into our next question and, and, and into the next question, which is about the campaign itself. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I wonder, uh, we don't need to talk specifically about your opponents in the primary, um, but I wonder if you can just talk a little bit about the fight that you're, you're about to engage in over this next year mm-hmm. um, and, and to, to win that primary, what kind of obstacles um, you're facing and, and sort okay. of what, your, what of your strategy that, that you want to share publicly, you can share mm-hmm. with us um, about how you're taking that on. Yeah, absolutely. I think there are a number of challenges, even just being uh, in this pandemic, where the traditional notions of voter contact we we can't really do. Right? Everyone loves door knocking. That's you know one of the things I really miss from working on our on our local campaigns out here. Right? Is that you can't really meet people one on one in the same kind of way that you used to be able to. Um, but there are incredible lessons to be learned in just this 2020 primary cycle and general cycle of just how important digital engagement is going to be um, to reaching the people that we really need to reach. And um, you know, our, our team is also fully remote. We're not working out of a campaign office. We're all just on our laptops over Zoom and we meet in person when we can. So it's it's scrappy, it's grassroots, and you know, we're we're building out a movement from the ground up. And I think that says a lot about how we plan to see this campaign grow, right? Once we once we clinch that primary, move to November two. That's the goal at the end of the day, right? Um, but digital is going to be something that we really need to focus heavily on. And I think um, even that you know most recent article from a- from AOC even says a lot about um, what that how important that strategy is going to be, and really where um, the uh, where we can really beat people at their game, right? A little Mm. bit, so to speak, right? Because as a very young campaign, as one that's very scrappy, one that is really strategic on things like social media, it's going to be really important to use that to our advantage um, and think critically about how we do voter contact in a way that's that's still meaningful, right? Still meeting people where they're at, um, but does so so creatively um, and mindfully with the resources that we have at our disposal. Um, and it's going to be challenging, right? I think because it's often the queen's machine that's able to fund um, a lot of these kinds of projects and a lot of voter right. contact, and we don't have that at our disposal. Mm-hmm. And I don't think of that as an impediment. I think of just that as just continuing to build our legitimacy. And I think even the word itself, viability, legitimacy, are often weaponized against a lot of young leftists to say that, you know, you, yeah. you can't, you don't have buy-in, you don't have name ID out here, all these, you know, you know usual things people use to, to pressure you down and pressure you out of actually taking this race on seriously. Um, so for me, I think it's going to be really important that we stay true to our values, right? We organize the way that we know how to, uh, and that I think is something that's often missing from a lot mm-hmm. of campaigns, especially in my district. Like people, I, I can't even remember the last time somebody had knocked on my door for a campaign out mm-hmm. there. Um, I'm more used to, and so so are so many of my neighbors and friends out here in the district are so used to just getting three or four mailers the week before the primary. Right, right, right. <laughs> and, you know, you collect all of these these cards, all these mailers, you don't, you don't really look at them. But that's the only contact I've ever really gotten from the political establishment, from a lot of people here. Maybe one or two reps I've, I've actually seen in person. But, you know, that's, that's the kind of seismic shift that we're hoping to have with this campaign, that we're actually out in our district, that we're actually meeting people out in the streets and talking to them about what matters to them and meeting them where they're at. And mm-hmm. that is going to be so important to how we build out civic engagement in this district 
how we make people feel like they're included and involved and wanting to be consulted on some of the most important right. things that are going to be happening in our district. So um, it's going to be non-traditional. It's our, our battle is going to be uphill for sure, but I never see those as impediments. I see those as opportunities to really rethink how we do local politics in Queens. So does the digital strategy like, uh, I mean, does that include um, phone banking and text mm. banking, stuff like that? Uh, and and, yeah. and are you able to acquire lists and, and all of that kind of stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So starting out early on trying out our messaging on phone banking and text banking, getting volunteers to kind of doing this together on Zoom, which is not ideal, right? But, you know, this is this is the nature of the work. This is how we keep people safe. Then even things like running digital ads on social media, those have been really helpful for a lot of campaigns to really get um, their name out there in a non-traditional way. Um, and of course, um, doing things like street canvassing, that's still very possible mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. now, right? Where you set up your table, you kind of hand out your campaign literature and, and really have these kinds of one-on-one uh, -on -one conversations in a safe way to still be able to um, meet people in person. And... Um... I, just a, a little bit more. I, I I realize I should have asked you this at the top, but <laughs> I wonder if you can just talk a little bit about like what's the size of your district, yeah. um, and and uh, like yeah, how many people are in this district? Yeah, this is a huge city council district. Right. We have well over a hundred thousand people who mm. are in the district, and um, voter turnout is also a, you know very unfortunately low right in, in the past couple of cycles only about six to seven thousand people have shown up to vote uh, in the primary cycle out of a hundred thousand people um, and around 70 to eighty thousand eligible voters to begin with so the engagement's unfortunately low but it's also one of the most diverse if not the most diverse city council district in the entire city um, we have an Asian majority at around 30%, th around 37% of our district is Asian. We have the third largest Asian immigrant population, and we have the highest number of Hindi speakers in, in hmm. the entire city too. So there's so much interesting diversity across our district. We have a really high um, uh, white Jewish population here too. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of really interesting ways that we can think about how we're kind of building out these coalitions across different groups of people um, and also uh, expanding the electorate too, right? How do we get more people to actually show up to the elections? Can we register more voters? Can we get more people to the polls and really think about how we get this new crop of young folks who are about to be eligible to vote for the first time in 2021 um, and getting them out to the polls, getting their families out together um, and really, uh, pushing people, pushing that people power to the polls in particular. And I know you, you said that there's also a large Punjabi uh, contingency mm -hmm. in, in the district, and I assume a uh, majority of those are sick. Yeah. Um, sometimes, you know, in my conversations with six about politics, there is this refrain about, you know, our community is, is struggling. We are, you know, we deal with our, our issues of, um, you know, uh, state uh, violence back in, mm -hmm. in India and, and our history and legacy of that. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we should, you know, there's this refrain that I hear sometimes about, you know, we should be helping ourselves before we're helping other communities. Mm. Uh, what, what, what would you say to that, um, that uh, point of view? And, yeah. uh, and, and, you know, what, what, what would you see for uh, six mm -hmm. uh, that are kind of 
looking at the current political landscape and and how they can organize to improve their own lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I would say that that's just antithetical to Sikhi in the first place, right? Seva is such an important tenet to what we do in our communities and how we bring people out that you don't turn anyone away from, you know, their lack of ability to pay or their, you know, inaccessibility to housing or whether they're food insecure, you don't turn anyone away, right? And I think we need to get back to those kinds of bare bones of public service that's really rooted in who we are as a community. And, you know, we, we've even had, you know, two Sikh Punjabis run in our district over the past 10 years, and we haven't really achieved that gap. And uh, we haven't really closed that gap in representation in our district to begin mm-hmm. with. So I think there's something really powerful to build out of what the political landscape of Sikh Punjabis in New York City looks like broadly. And I, I really look to even Jakarta movement in California and how they've been really been able to mobilize people at the most local level from hosting mm. basketball tournaments um, to engaging young folks in the Gurdwaras and doing that community service. There are so many opportunities to bring people out and really think about how are we operating as a collective? How is our um, community as Sikh Punjabis, how is our liberation tied to other people too? Mm. And it's that kind of solidarity, that kind of political education that I think is really going to push us over the edge and really um, build out that kind of long-term political commitment to making something that's going to benefit every single person in this district, every single person in New York City, and every single person in our in our community to begin with. And I think that not only happens with youth, but that happens with our seniors, our elders, and our parents to begin with. It has mm-hmm. to be intergenerational. It has to. Um, And I think as a young person, it's really important for me to champion that and really bring language access into our campaign, too, because you can't speak to a community if you don't speak their language Mm -hmm. in so many different ways. Right. And I think that there's so much opportunity here to reimagine how our Sikh Punjabi community can really be engaged in a way that goes beyond just taking a nice photo, giving a nice speech. Um, and, and really doing doing this kind of grassroots work because we know exactly how to do that. We've been doing it, right? And I think yeah. that putting that into a lens of civic engagement is really going to get us the wins that we deserve. And um, you know, I think that for me, it's going to be really important to bring in Punjabi women into the into the picture too. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, it's it's no mystery that it's there's a culture of patriarchy within our communities that mm-hmm. doesn't allow a lot of young sick women to have a voice to be able to really flex their political muscle and be unapologetic about who they are and to bring in mothers and daughters into that picture in solidarity with so many other people in their community for queer six as well. I think mm. is, you know, it's, it's going to ruffle some feathers, I'm sure. But this is the fight that's absolutely necessary to bring us forward, to bring us into a new era of Punjabi, you know, political presence and really push us somewhere that's going to be more progressive because I know our people are out there. Um, you know, this is what I've seen just in my own community, in my own neighborhood, in my own family. And, you know, people want it, but just no one, no one's talking to them about it mm. and really giving them a space to, you know, to talk it through. And I think if we give them that opportunity and really um, let them speak on it, then we're going to get where we need to go. And yeah. we'll really push us somewhere really just transformatively. I think that too, it's like, uh, you know, I think a lot of our framing uh, in our education as as Sikhs, you know, in the Gurdwara is about 
you know, our, 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 our ancestors, our historic ancestors fighting against uh, like imperial oppression. Mm-hmm. And there's often this sort of uh, religious, religious element to it that that is mm-hmm. highlighted. But but, um, you know, as we see in our history, six have worked with other communities to combat that exactly uh, that imperial uh, oppression. And, and, and in this context, like the taxi workers demonstrate to us, our like our lot is inextricable from the lot of of others, mm-hmm. uh, and and the the oppressor that we're fighting is these is this faceless, nameless corporations and right. and and mon- you know the money that buys politicians that continue our conditions as the way they are, and and I think that that's a really wonderful. I love the way that you uh, you frame that, and I love yeah. the the the. I uh, just I it, it gives me a lot of um um hope and and inspiration uh to to see you um pushing for this and and making this run and um bringing our community along and yeah. and uh giving giving it a um a platform yeah. where folks can learn how to organize and and learn how to work in politics in a in a really meaningful way um mm-hmm. Um, so, so I guess the last thing I I'll ask, unless, uh, unless there's other, other things that you'd like to discuss <laughs> is how can folks, you know, cause we have folks that are all over the world that listen to the show. Mm. And I think that a lot of them, um, I've seen friends in the UK posting about your campaign and I've seen, <laughs> uh, friends all across the country that are talking about, uh, your, your campaign. Mm. Uh, and since everything is digital now and remote, Mm-hmm. Um, how can folks get involved? How can they help you? Uh, can they volunteer for you? How can they yeah. donate for you? Where, what can folks do for you and where can they go to do that? Yeah, there are so many ways to help out now. I think that is really going to link up people from so many different parts, not even just in New York City, right, but broadly. And so for us, you can go to our website. You can go to jesselinecar.nyc. That's J-A-S-L-I-N-K-A-U-R.nyc. And we, you can read through our platform, too, at the beginning stages of some of our policy priorities to begin with and really dig into, you know, get to know me, get to know the district. Um, and you can also vol- sign up to volunteer. Um, and there's so many tiers of that to begin with, right? You can sign up just to be on our mailing list and get updates on how things are going on the campaign. Um, you can sign up to host a digital fundraiser for us. Uh, usually what we do is people will host like house parties or someone will, someone will host and yeah, that's that's not exactly safe right now. Right. So um, we're open to having folks who um, can bring in their folks, bring in their people who are interested in this campaign to even host like a Zoom house party um, to get word out about the campaign. Um, and you can even volunteer to join our team if you have a skill that you really want to contribute, if you're really good at digital ads, if you're really good at field, if you're really a, a communications person who's really good at press and media. These are the kinds of skills that uh, not only do we want to bring onto the campaign, um, but also teach and build out so that other folks mm. have the opportunity to learn. And so I think that's even a priority for us on the campaign, right? That we're scaling out skills and making sure that people leave this campaign with something that they can attribute in, in whatever else their next project is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then fundraising is also really important to this campaign too, as you know, we, we've really waxed poetic about this is a, a grassroots effort yeah. that we're really pulling from the people. Um, but this is also a publicly funded election. So 
if you're in New York City, you can actually contribute to our um, qualifications towards being part of the New York City Public Matching Funds program. So every dollar that's donated from a New York City resident gets matched with another eight. So if you Mm. donate $10, the city matches it with another 80. And then your small dollar donation actually gives us $90 to the campaign. So a dollar goes really far if you're from New York City. But donations are welcome throughout New York State, um, only in the United States and uh, unfortunately. But if you're not from the States, um, of course, we'd love to have you to volunteer whatever you possibly can on our efforts. Um, and we're really excited to bring in um, a new cadre of volunteers. We're a really young team as well. Um, and I'm really excited to see um, see this grow and have other people learn and grow with us all the way to, the, to that June primary in 2021. Amazing. And I assume folks can phone bank and text bank for you and stuff, or is that is that up and running yet? Not quite yet. We're doing a lot of behind the scenes work right now to get our ducks in a row. But if you sign up for updates, you'll be the first to know um, about when our phone banking shifts will start. And if you're in the city, uh, when our street canvassing efforts will begin too. Amazing. Well, uh, I will be sure to uh, post that link uh, <laughs> in the uh, comments of the, of the episode. Yeah. And I... Uh, and I, anybody who's listening to this in New York, uh, if you're in New York City, uh, send as much money as you uh, can <laughs> to Justine's, uh campaign because it's going to make, uh, you can get that eight to one uh, match and that's a huge deal for a grassroots campaign. And if you can contribute anything at all, do it yeah. uh, no matter where you are in the country. Um, and uh, I know I'll be supporting you. And, uh, and, uh, when you get those, uh, text banks and phone banks and stuff going, uh, I will be making calls for you and, uh, yeah. yeah, so, so my, my, well, and, and I'll keep, I'll talk to you after this as well, because Great. I just, my whole gig is uh, phone bank, uh, 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 management and stuff. Awesome. That's what I do for a living. So I will, I will be very happy to support however I can. And, uh, yeah. Uh, I just really want to thank you so much for this. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for running and for doing this organizing and taking on this work and uh, for for the vision that you're laying out for people in Queens and uh, really as an example to folks everywhere. So, yeah. uh, Jocelyn, Cora, thank you so, so much for joining us here on The One. And uh, we hope to to check in and see how you're doing and, uh, and, and wishing you all the best and success in this race. Awesome. Thank you, Shev. It's It's an absolute honor to really be here and, and, and talk through so many of the incredible goals and dreams that we have. And I think you have to keep that dream alive, right? You've got to push the envelope. You've got to go beyond the realm of what's possible politically, totally. materially, socially. And, you know, let's let's hit the ground running. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Thanks so much. Of course. Of course. That was Jocelyn Kaur. You can find her on Twitter at Jocelyn for Queens. You can find more information about her campaign, read her progressive agenda, and support her work by going to justlinecore.nyc. You can find links to all of these in the show notes. You can find more episodes of The One with Shabad on your favorite podcast app or by going to anchor.fm slash theonepodcast. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next month.